Consensus Network. Oh, hello there. This is Nico, Shadow is Super Publisher, with our latest guests, Yoni Appleberg, psychonaut, medical doctor, and a martial artist. And most importantly, from the point of view of the show, the author of Abundance Through Scarcity. Welcome, Yoni. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's just dive right into it. Let's um, let's tell the audience what what is the why did you write the book? Uh, what is it about? Let's let's go from there. Yeah. Well, the book is about the uh, importance of Bitcoin for the future of our civilization, and it is not the book just for Bitcoiners. I've come to realize over the years that I've written this book, this is a book for everybody because Coin is one of the most important projects that we have going on as as a species and it's going to concern everybody it's on par with uh, becoming a multi-planetary species uh, fusion power it's one of those kind of technologies and so it concerns, concerns everybody so in my book i try to make it accessible what bitcoin means for the future of humanity and and also of course i have this i have a potentially delusional optimism about bitcoin uh, and i need to spread the signal it's a, it's a compulsion. I, I can't stop. Oh, that sure. sounds very familiar. <laughs> it sounds familiar. I guess so, yeah. But of course, also, I, I wrote the book for me. I love writing and I want to get really good at it. I love uh, trying out and uh, sharpening new ideas. And I love just seeing how everything comes together. You know, the storyline, the artwork and everything. It just now it becomes a final pro- product. Yeah. That is a very satisfying process. And I don't think that I've ever taken on a project of this magnitude before. And in this process, I mean, I've been writing this for several years, long before I knew you guys. And I've learned a lot about what it means and what is necessary to succeed uh, with that goal. Whether that is reaching 200 chess ELO or publishing a book or uh, getting a black belt in pursuing uh, jiu-jitsu or whatever it is. Taking on a grand project like this requires commitment, but commitment is only necessary to get the project going. You need commitment for that. A lot of people talk about a lot of things that you want to do, but never actually do them. And in order to get started, which is probably the most important step, you need commitment. But even more important is consistency. And that is where the lessons has been for me. Because consistency, in contrast to commitment, can be very taxing. Consistency is very close. You have to make a lot of sacrifices. You have to show up every day. And I have goals that I'm committed to in virtually every aspect of my life. And now I'm practicing consistency on a daily basis because now I have actually seen what consistency needs to result in. So that is very, a very useful experience for me. It feels like I've grown a lot in this project. So I'm, yeah. just, I'm, I'm not even sure that I'm answering your question, Nico. <laughs> I, I actually forgot what I asked already, but that's that's all good. I, I wanted to dwell a little bit more into you, and you mentioned chess, and, and you mentioned jiu-jitsu, and yeah. those uh, sub-goals. Did you achieve those goals by any chance, or did you just pull them, uh, pull other goals that you have currently? I am not even close. I'm not even close. I've always wanted to publish a book, and now that is uh, off my bucket list. And I'm off, obviously going to continue on that journey and write more books. But I'm working consistently now on uh, improving my chess ELO. And that is probably the uh, most significant source of both happiness 
and anxiety in my life. <laughs> I can chess understand. is not just struggle. It is, I don't know if you said it, but chess is, is the human struggle. It reflects who you are. You learn a lot about yourself, who you are as a person, and you learn a lot about life. There's a lot of life lessons embedded in chess. It, I could easily devote my life to studying this game. It, it requires so much more effort that I could ever had imagined to just gain a few points of yellow. Yeah. And I like those kind of struggles and those kind of journeys. I'm on a different journey right now. I've been working on calisthenics for about a year and have a, have a goal that by 2026, I will be able to, to do an elicit, go to the full charge and then do a full handstand. And that's a journey as well. So you, I think that you need, you need relationship goals. You need training goals. You need, uh, creative goals. So right now I'm working on chess. I'm working on calisthenics and I'm working on my writing. That's awesome. I mean, it's clear to me that you're a proof work guy. So, I mean, jujitsu, chess, all these things, they take their time. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, how, how would you say that those, those, uh, well, let's say, uh, hobbies or sub goals affected your book writing and, and, and I bet they made it better, but in which way? Well, it's in, in you're using the important word that you're using the word hobby, and that's exactly what they are in a way. But I think it's important to make a distinction here. And this is just as a tangent. I mean, everybody needs a job, right? We can have jobs, can have hobbies, we can have vocations and. A job is where we get our money. Everybody needs a job. And having a hobby is also important because, uh, because that, that's where you have your creative outlet, where you can evolve as a person. Nobody needs to know about your hobbies. They're for you. I play chess for me. I write for me. I practice martial arts for me. And I explore the nature of consciousness through the use of psychedelics for me. And those are my hobbies. But then there's vocations. And location is the thing that nobody should take away from you. That's serving a greater purpose, whether that's a, a God or a belief system or being a parent or for some people, Bitcoin. And the hobby can absolutely evolve into a location. Most often, hobbies evolve into careers rather than locations. And a career is when a, when a hobby becomes sort of a, not a job exactly, but you sort of get paid for doing your hobby. That's, that's a career. But vocation is when you can elevate uh, your hobby to the level where it is, it takes on a different kind of meaning, where it transcend who you are as a person. Well, that's, a, that's just tangent. You were asking how these, uh, how my hobbies have affected my writing. You know, I, th I think that they all just spill into each other in a way. Uh, you, you learn. You have life lessons in chess, you have life lessons in martial arts and so on, and just working on consistency and realizing the importance of consistency, that is, that is being very helpful. And that's basically all you need. You need commitment and consistency uh, in everything that you want to excel in. Yeah. See, that's interesting because I, I don't really like the word hobby that much. Like people tend to say that you, you shouldn't uh, make your hobby into your profession that would kill the fun or whatever. But the, the way I see it, like what happened with you proper, probably it's the same thing that happened with me that we have specific interests that we can call them hobbies or whatever. These are the things that we do for ourselves because we enjoy doing them. Right. And then we yeah. find a vocation at some point, like spreading Bitcoin knowledge or writing books or being a medical doctor that, like, like yourself. 
And then these uh, things that are part of us uh, as, a, as an interest, a separate interest group, they becomes, they start spilling into and also building your vocation. Unless, of course, I mean, I guess it's not a vocation if you're just talking about a career or a profession. Like I used to have a, a career as a construction engineer that was not specifically something that I found, ever found my vocation. I just did it for money. So that's a different thing, right? Yeah. Uh, when, when a hobby becomes a job, you've killed your hobby. You've killed the, uh, the love for your hobby. Then it's no longer a job, hobby, then it's a job. But your hobby can evolve into a career, and that's a different thing. Right. You look at someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, and you ask him about taking a vacation, he doesn't, he doesn't even know what you're asking about, because there is no such thing as taking a vacation from asking questions about the universe, which is the most important thing to him. So he has made his hobby into a career because that is now where he gets his money. But a career is different from a job. A lot of uh, medical professionals consider their job a career, but I think that it's just, uh, I don't know that that's true. I think most people actually have, most doctors are actually just, it's their job. It's not a, it's not a hobby that became a career. It could be if you're, if you're a researcher and if you're going down that path, then it could be a career. But honestly, I think that most jobs are just jobs today. Yeah, it's all about trading your scarce time into non-scarce fun coupons, which is which is kind of like the big problem that you talk about in your book as well. The fiat slavery, right? Yeah, One of the chapters. Yeah. And to circle back a little bit about uh, the book, maybe it's a good time to show uh, um, show some art from the book. I would like to show sure. the cover and yeah. maybe a couple pages, and then we can yeah. talk about that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do the cover first. And Nico, I have to say, I'm so happy with this cover. Tell us a story in itself. Yeah, yeah, me too. This, uh, is, uh, this is the future of humanity. Bitcoin is the future of humanity. Becoming a multiplanetary species is the future of humanity. And unlocking fusion power is the future of humanity. This is the kind of scale that Bitcoin is on. Right. Yeah. So it's a fantastic cover. And yeah, yeah. It's, it tells it, uh, its own, it's like a movie uh, poster type of thing. Like it tells its own story right there and there. And, and that's why I like it so much. Like it's not really obvious. And on the nose, of course, since we've read the book already, it's, it's pretty obvious to us what it means. Yes. But it beckons, like that's what the co a good cover does. It beckons the, the, the reader who picks it up, open the first page and, and continue. And that's, I think this uh, cover accomplishes that really. I think so too. We've got a lot of great feedback on Twitter as well on this. Uh, this was clearly the way to go. But this is not the only only uh, awesome piece of art that we have in the book, right? No, it's not. It's not. We, this has some great artwork throughout, and I'm very happy with that. It was a great idea of you to include artwork in this first place. Then I had the opportunity to work a little bit with that, and it all just came together perfectly. Yeah, look at this. This is this so. Is this is. This is uh, like no other book that we've done before. I'm extremely happy with how it looks. I haven't seen it in life. I'm waiting for my proof copy to arrive, but uh, I hope it's going to be as awesome as, as it looks in the screen here. Yeah. So we have this like full page um, chapter specific artwork that Yoni has uh, crafted in my mid journey, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. That has also been a, a lot of fun. Uh, Learning to operate these, uh, this new tool and really getting the hand of that and to see what kind of a creative process it is to, to create these kind of images. It's not as easy as people think. No, 
And that's actually an excellent segue to one of my favorite parts of your book. You talk about 21st century cyborgs, mm -hmm. which I believe both of us, uh, according to your definition, qualify for that since we're using uh, eyeglasses. Yeah, I, I thought that was... To, we use a technology to improve our biological functions and that right. makes us cyborgs. So it's towards the end, like this book is kind of like a three-part um, way. First, we outline the problem uh, and then we, we kind of like go through the struggles and then we only present sort of a solution and a vision for the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some really beautiful images here throughout. And I think it's a really wise choice of you to also include some images towards the end. So uh, I don't know how many images I've created, but it's probably been like 60 or 60 images that have no more, hundreds of images that come to think of it. And we have selected the ones that we thought were best for the, for the message. Yeah, I think this will complement the message nicely. Okay. Yeah. They will give you a little bit of your brain, a little bit of a breather. Like if you read a lot of uh, long text, you get fatigue, but then once you break it off with, with some nice art every now and then, you give a, a little bit of a deserved break and also to ingest the words that were just read, because it is, uh, you said in the beginning, like it's, it's, uh, you try to make it accessible. I think you did a good job in making it as accessible as it could be, but keep in mind that this is not by no means a light read. Like uh, that I wouldn't say like, uh, I got a lot out of this book. I've, I've read a lot of, uh, books, BitCoin and otherwise, and it's not really a, a light read in that sense. I would say that it, it, it falls in some, somewhere between maybe, maybe Knut's one homeless work and, uh, a little bit of uh, Cypherdians, Bitcoin standard, and, and maybe even some Eric Voskul type of thinking uh, yes. from crypto economics. Uh, would you say that's fair? I would say that's fair. Uh, also, this is a different uh, genre altogether in the Bitcoin space. I don't think that anybody has written. You know, this is uh, it's not a technical book. It's a philosophical book, but it's written written on purpose. You know, there's this... Um, famous book here in Sweden uh, that's been uh, circulating for a while now. I'm not really sure what it's called in English, but it's about eels. It's a technical or academic book about eels, but it's written on prose, which makes it so incredibly beautiful. And now everybody is reading about eels. Uh, that's, just, uh, that's just a little bit weird. That's what I wanted to make. I wanted to make it, as you said, as accessible as possible. Because it's not a it's not a light read, but it's still accessible in the sense that this concerns all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Because you know what we have to realize is that, and what I make clear in the book is that money is a fundamental tool for civilization. We need money to coordinate the workforce and our resources that operates at large scale over generations. That is how we advance as a civilization. But civilizations also undergo uh, cycles of progress and decline. And a period of decline can be ignited by war, by pandemics, uh, lack of resources. And in order to resolve a period of decline, the state often resorts to currency devaluation to bolster the economy and the power of the state. But this works terribly because it never actually reverses the decline. It only diminishes the potential to actually uh, create progress. So the only way to truly swing the pendulum from the claim to progress is to build more economic goods, 
to advance technologically and economically by building more technology, like working on fusion power or becoming a multiplanetary species. That is how we truly advance the economy. We have to actually, we can't artificially expand the economy. The fiat system tries to do that, but that's not possible. We have to actually put in the work to progress as a civilization, to expand the economy. And uh, the state tries to circumvent that in periods of, periods of decline by printing money. That just doesn't work. Instead, it just breaks the money. And when money breaks, civilizations can no longer coordinate resources and the workforce or cooperate at large scale over generations, meaning that over centuries, uh, institutions begin to fail, populations begin to decline, poverty increases, and eventually civilizations collapse. And that is exactly what happened in Rome. Rome, uh, when they're, they experienced very severe periods of decline, war and pandemics and so on. So they devalued the denarius to bolster their economy and the power of the states. And they gained some temporary relief, but they also broke the denarius in the process. So after a few centuries, they tried to introduce new currencies, but none stuck. They, they all failed. So their, their decline continued and they couldn't reverse it when the money was broken. You know, there's some heartbreaking stories. I think I mentioned that I mentioned this in the book as well. There's truly heartbreaking stories from the decline of the uh, Roman Empire. There are stories of families, farmers mostly, and mostly uh, having to go into the cities, scavenging food like animals. And some even had to sell their children into slavery to feed them. They, they didn't sell their children to gain money themselves so that they could eat. They sold their children out of love because they couldn't feed their children. And as slaves, they would at least uh, not starve. And this is just heartbreaking. But Rome is so distant that it's, it's difficult to connect them. We have to remember that they're people just like us. And imagine if we take their stories and apply their stories to our own, uh, our own civilization. Imagine if our civilization in a hundreds or two hundred years and we were on a perpetual decline toward collapse. And we actually began to consider when it becomes a viable option where it became a, a true option that we we're actually considering to sell our children into slavery because we cannot feed them. It would just be horrendous. But they actually had to go through that. And I think there's important, uh, very important lessons in there. But we have, they, they didn't manage to, uh, they never managed to introduce new currencies. We have Bitcoin, which cannot be the base. Yeah. So now that we have money, that protects us from the states going on this devaluation journey driving us closer toward collapse. The Bitcoin does more than this. It also, it also promises a cultural and economic transformation on a scale that is comparable to the enlightenment of the Middle Ages. So you know, there's just so, so much to love about Bitcoin. You know, over the course of history, humans have found ways to work together in larger and larger groups. We began as, as hunter-gatherers working in small bands together a small band of maybe six to 12 people. Then about 12,000 years ago, we began to, for, uh, to settle and farm land. And we, we found ways to uh, work together in even greater numbers. And that is where the Dunbar number comes from. That's come from, that, that comes from the uh, agricultural age, where we built sites up upwards of 300 people or so. 
but the farming, the agricultural age extended all the way up to the industrial age and had societies of tens of thousands of people after then, at least systems that allow us to coordinate the thousands. And then we industrialized and we uh, developed new systems where we could coordinate as a species in much greater numbers and millions. And now, Nico, we are in the early stages of the digital age, and we now have systems where we can uh, cooperate and coordinate over much, much larger numbers, in, in billions. And this is, uh, this is basically the story of humanity, uh, finding ways to work together in larger and larger groups. So Bitcoin is a very natural step in our cultural evolution. We have always bonded over the dominant story of the era, whether that's nationalism, fascism, communism, capitalism, or religions. Bitcoin is an entirely new kind of story that finds billions. And it's a simple and beautiful story. Uh, it's a story that value communication on fair and equal terms out third parties. That is the Bitcoin story. And I'm not sure that everybody agrees, but I think that the biggest in the uh, global economy at this point in time is exclusivity. And I mean, just contrast that with C CBDCs are money with an integrated uh, surveillance system, an integrated surveillance system into the technology. That is, uh, that should scare a lot of people. The CBDC saying all is that taxes in and inflation are no longer enough to control the population. We also now need an inbuilt surveillance system into the actual money. They, they now need, they're saying with CBDCs, they now need uh, high resolution financial surveillance. Uh, they need to know your whereabouts, your financial activities, and everything. Bitcoin signal, on the other hand, is no thanks. I don't need that. We are fine on our own. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Yoni. Uh, let me try to see if I remember everything. But Sorry, yeah, like, just this depends. No, yeah, no, that, that was great. That was, that's all good. And I, I agree with, uh, with everything you said. We, we can't expect to fix the system from inside. Like more voting is not going to do anything for us. Like we, we have to keep doing, like you said, produce those uh, goods and services on our own. We have the money to do that now. We kind of already started to build this kind of parallel society which to some, it may seem like a little bit harsh, a little bit sad, myself included, but I, I, I see that that's the only way to do it. Like you have to prove, like you have to have some proof of work behind it. Like the market is always wrong. That's what the Henry Ford said. That's what Steve Jobs said. Like you, you cannot ask the market, like, what should we do? Oh, well, I, I want more pre-lunches. I mean, that's what, that's what the, the, the average market user would say about money. They do not understand, especially in the, in the so-called first world countries, people don't really understand what is exactly the utility. Why should I be interested in this Bitcoin money? Because I just go to the shop and flash my card, everything works. I get my food and, uh, you know, probably inflation is because of the war in uh, Ukraine or whatever they tell you from the TV. Those are big problems and those, those are parts of the modern slavery. Like you talked about the slavery and that's obviously may, well, it's slightly better that the people are in a position to actually be able to feed their children rather than having to sell them to physical slavery uh, so that they get fed. That's, that's a bad situation. However, the modern slavery is also bad because now you are, you are taught that you are actually free when you're not. 
and you don't even get the free meal that you get in the physical uh, slavery, which is kind of funny. You're, you're expected to provide for your own roof and, and your yes. board. Uh, but of course, yes, uh, I mean, it's much more comfortable way, way to be in slavery, I'm, I'm sure. I uh, don't try to talk down on, on like the, the actual slavery. A traditional slavery is, is harsher in a, in a different way. It, it, it's different, yes. Uh, but that, that being said, that doesn't mean that we don't have real slavery in the modern information world. And the information age made it much, much worse because now we have a way to propagate propaganda globally within seconds, everywhere at once. So it truly takes a special mind and, uh, and a special fighting spirit to see through that and want to unplug from the matrix. That's something that you, you also go into in, in your book. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a, an awakening, the truth is. You said something interesting here, Nico, that society is changing and we are going to see a lot of people starting with the traditional way of the, well, the ways that we are used to seeing society as it is now. This way of organizing is going to change for several reasons. One is that we are only in the early stages of the digital age. Some people think that we may be uh, pretty advanced into the digital age. We are not. We're definitely not. This is the beginning of the digital age. You know, all of the devices that we have, screens, keyboards, mouses, smartphones, these are going to be ancient technologies sooner rather than later. We are not going to have these kind of technologies. Society is dematerializing. And we are going to lose more and more of the physical parts of society as we, yeah. as we go on. And this scares a lot of people. Some people are sad because of this. It's, uh, it's the most radical cultural and economic change in the history of our species. And we don't really know what what it's going to mean. We are also going to see the disintegration of the nation state in due time. Not necessarily the disintegration of all of nation states, but we are going to see a rise of sovereign state projects. We can call them uh, micronations uh, if they arise on their own, sort of organically, or if uh, larger nations split, split up into small nations from a balkanization. And I think the, be the better word for this is Bitcoin um, citadels. Yeah, that's that's what the Bitcoiners understand at least. But I, yes. I think I, I like to use the the term balkanization yeah, into smaller city origin. states. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. But but it depends on the origin of that new sovereign state. Right. If, if it is a if it is a bigger nation that bigger nation that is splitting up into smaller parts, like former Yugoslavia, for example, that's balkanization. But if we have uh, hot tribes in Australia or Christianity, Denmark, and so on. That's uh, that's more the rise of micronation. And you know, Bitcoin is uh, is going to allow these types of you know because we can we can now we can create companies. Everybody can start a company. That was less possible hundred years ago. And now we can even create money. Nobody could do that before, but now we have created our own money. That was less possible just fifty years ago. And it is still not possible to create your own governments, your own states, but Bitcoin is going to allow for that as well. The digital age in combination with Bitcoin is going to allow for that as well. And we are not only going to see the rise of micronations, of balkanization, and so on, as you know, Bitcoin makes a micronation 
independent of traditional financial structures and you can have their own trading partners and so on. And we can really empower these smaller groups. But more than that, Bitcoin could potentially become the first ever network states. And Bologna makes this point in this book to network states that network states are on the rise, but they have to make the connection with Bitcoin because I believe that Bitcoin network could be the very first network states with its own constitution, its own institutions, and its own com- communities. We could have our own flag. We, are, we already have our own money. And we could be unified by shared values rather than a shared state currency. Yeah, yeah what I, I, I like to talk about, like this global village society, which we already lived in. Uh, earlier, you were talking about Dunbar number. And in the information age, funnily enough, I feel like it's, and, and by the way, Dunbar number means the, the, the maximum amount of contacts that you can maintain some kind of a meaningful connection to, which is, I believe, around 150, uh, contacts, which, uh, everybody can think of their like social media contacts and their, their phone contact. It's about the 150. You, after that, people just start to fall off. So keeping that in mind in the information age, you would think that your circle expands. But my experience is the opposite. My circle has curtailed and uh, helped me curate more signal of the things that I care about, which is great. Uh, and this is completely in contrast of the kind of like collectivist thought that we're all in its, uh, in this big boat that is the you know, planet in a way physically that is true. However, how we conduct ourselves, how we actually present ourselves and live our lives in, in the real world and in, in the cyberspace, it's very different. Like we, we might not be connected or care about other people at all. And should we? Maybe not. Maybe the only thing that we should not, we should consider with that we, we should not use violence and theft against other peaceful individuals unless it's to defend ourselves. Right. So I, I, we, we have to make a distinction between the meaningful connections that we have in our life and the net that we have in our life. And so two separate things. Right. One bar number persists. We can only make meaningful connections with about 150 to uh, maybe maximum 300 people, somebody said, would say. Um, and well, the number remains, the double number remains, but our, our intimate circles have been diminished as we have going further into the information age and the digital age. But we're still in the early stages. We're still experimenting with building these global networks and expanding our networks and our communities. And that has taken a toll, I believe, on our intimate circles. Before, we lived in small societies and we didn't have networks outside of that. We lived in small societies of about two or three hundred SS farmers. But now we live in much, much smaller intimate circles, but with much, much larger networks, global networks. And seeing that this is, we're still in the early stage of experiments with this. I believe this, that this is uh, going to have its own evolution. We have no idea what, it, what it's going to be like in another few centuries with our networks and our intimate circles. But uh, I absolutely agree with you that, that our intimate circles have taken a toll but not necessarily for the worse. Um, for a lot of people, a lot of people are more isolated and alone. And that is clearly not a good thing. Some people have also beginning to wake up from the system. They are beginning to 
find connection with nature, with ourselves, with the other people, and with the universe in ways that we haven't uh, for for centuries. And that is very valuable. And I think that there that the trajectory is is what is meaningful here. We have to look at where we're going, not necessarily just where we are. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great point. And, uh, you're talking about opening your eyes and leaving the matrix. And to that, uh, I, I think, uh, your experiments with psychedelics has all helped you a lot, opening your own, you know, third eye or whatever you might call it, some kind of a foresight, or even if it's not really a foresight, it is more of an insight. That's, that's my experience with psychedelics anyway. So maybe we could, we could, uh, Wrap, wrap this up with uh, going, going a little bit uh, into that. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, our listeners are interested in that, but I sure am. <laughs> me too. So no, uh, yeah. uh, let, let, me, let me form it into a question. So Sure. So you talk about uh, stuff like Burning Man, Exiting Matrix, Psychedelic Revolution, and Bitcoin Revolution. What's the connection there? You know, the, the greatest achievement in humanity is our current era of peace. And Bitcoin is very important in solidifying our current era of peace. And it does this in three ways. I will just uh, take this small tangent to answer your question. Bitcoin enables large-scale intergenerational cooperation by being hard money that operates on the rail of the first and only public monetary system ever devised. And it also, secondly, it also makes... uh, Short wars too costly for states when they cannot confiscate money from the citizens to wage war. And thirdly, this is important bit, it changes our psychology. It expands our time horizons farther into the future, enabling us to build for the future, uh, for a future that we desire. Bitcoin and psychedelics make us more like NASA and SpaceX and less like Facebook and Twitter as people. So when I talk about Burning Man and the psychedelic revolution and exiting the matrix, it is about how Bitcoin to truly have this transformative effect on us as individuals and as society as well. I mean, all realities are merely reflections of our cognitive landscapes. And society is the collective reflection of everybody's cognitive landscapes. And if, if everybody has a virus or a disease in their, in their cognition or in their emotional or cognitive or spiritual landscape, that is going to be reflected in society. So I often say that there are four very, the, the four most important professions in society are parents, engineers, scientists, researchers. Maybe just those three, actually. Because what about they, entrepreneurs? Yeah, entrepreneurs, sir. That's the four. Exactly. Cool. Thank you. Entrepreneurs. Those four are the most important professions in society because they drive civilization forward. The rest of us are just maintenance. As a doctor, I am uh, I'm a garbage man. I do maintenance of society. I'm not driving civilization forward. But parents are. Teachers, teachers are. Engineers and entrepreneurs are. And I think teachers and parents are especially interesting from the perspective that what they're actually doing for civilization, if we take the largest perspective on what teachers actually do and parents actually do for civilization, not only do parents, you know, create the next generation, teachers and parents also forge the algorithms in the mind, in the brains of children. 
so they can implant the future. They can sort of they are they are architects of the future civilization or future society by creating the children type of children that we think will create the best kind of society. We have the power to architect society by influencing the minds of our children. Our children are literally the future, and we can influence our trajectory not only by letting them inherit what we've already built, but also by shaping their minds. And that is why teachers are so important, not just because they impart wisdom and knowledge. Uh, we could have an AI for that, or we could have or whatever. We maybe we don't necessarily even need education, but we need uh, to help children build their minds in a way that is desirable for the future of our civilization. That is the most important task that a teacher has. So, you know, uh, I think that the most important thing that I've from the, uh, in the psychedelic phase of mine is to zoom out to see the true importance of things, to see what's wrong with technology and our ways of thinking or our ways of doing things, actually, what they actually mean. And Burning Man is a very fascinating example because it's, because it's so permitting. It's a place where people are not confined by traditional thinking. And radical things can happen when you're no longer confined by traditional means of thinking. When people actually start to explore new territory in their cognitive landscape, that is, that in our uh, everyday societies, in our everyday lives, are not even accessible. And Bitcoin does the same thing for us. It shows us where our stories are flawed. It shows us what we need to correct. And it does this by providing healthy money that cannot be inflated, that cannot be corrupted, that cannot be seized or censored. So it shows us what's wrong with the, with the fiat system. And in a very similar sense, place like Burning Man shows us what's wrong with how we organize as a society. It shows us that we are judgmental. We exclude a lot of people, but not to our own benefit, not to, to, to nobody's benefit. It shows us that we are ingrained in a certain type of thinking may not be very good for us. You know, this happened in, in the 60s. You know, we, we experimented a lot with psychedelics in the 40s and 50s as a way to research consciousness of mind and to uh, treat psychiatric conditions that we leaked into society in the 60s. And it became synonymous with the counterculture. And this was a grassroots movement that was gaining a lot of momentum. And it started to worry uh, people because this grassroots movement, the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, they realized that humanity is on the wrong course. We need to course correct. We have embarked on a trajectory that is not benefiting us or the planet or anybody. So they began to organize differently, began to create new kinds of societies. And this was a direct threat against existing power structures. So our existing power structures before the psychedelic movement had gained enough momentum to withstand the states. The states shut them down. From one day to the next, all research was discontinued. But now since the, 80, the late 80s, the early 90s, and especially now, we have uh, done a lot of research again. We have, uh, we're on track again with the research. And I think we're also waking up. Uh, a lot of people are waking up to the ideas uh, the principles of Burning Man and the principles of Bitcoin and the principles of psychedelics. 
And I think we're on the verge of cultural revolution as much as we are on an economic uh, revolution and a very significant change in the way that we organize society, if not for the digital age. A lot is about to change. Well, yeah, I, I, I think so too. And uh, yeah, I gotta say, uh, you comparing yourself to a garbage man as a medical doctor, it must be some kind of unusual Swedish humility high. But I do appreciate the point, like that's, that's, uh, it is a maintenance job, right? No matter yes. how important it is. Yes. That's, that's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. And I mean, I, like, of course, we are paid better than garbage in our, and that sort of gives us more status, I guess. But the thing is, we would collapse faster without garbage than we would without doctors. That's interesting. At least uh, you as a doctor would have way more more work if the garbage men were not there. <laughs> yeah, that is also true. So uh, talking about the, the psychedelics, um, I think it was Terence McKenna who said that psychedelics don't work on stupid people. Does Bitcoin work on stupid people? Wow, that's the best question I've heard in a long time. That's so interesting, Nico. Because it is absolutely true that psychedelics, they don't work on everybody. You have to be open to them. They, they are a tool more than anything. And they are an incredible tool for reprogramming your mind and waking up. But not everybody can wake up. If you've reached a certain age or if you, if you have a certain tech mind, you're not going to be able to wake up in the first place. So psychedelics don't work on stupid people. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. It gets the point across. Bitcoin is to the benefit of all of humanity. It is a new economic operating system with capabilities that our current economic system lacks, such as neutrality and openness. Bitcoin invites the other half. It invites all of humanity. And looking at Mikhail's law, uh, it is going to bolster our, our capabilities as a civilization through network effect alone, having another 4 billion minds connected in the global economy. It is going to be the single greatest economic confusion in, in human history where we can onboard the other half. So Bitcoin uh, is to the benefit of all humanity and to, our, to every individual as an economic system. But as a psychotechnology, I'm going to have to think about this, like other psychotechnologies, like language, which, hel which helps us see, uh, perceive the world. The language we have in our minds is, a, is an operating system that allows us to perceive the world and grasp ideas and concepts and, and uh, formulate an infinite number of concepts. The Bitcoin, similarly, is a psychotechnology that helps us expand our time horizons, see the future. And I think that can happen passively as well. Everybody may not wake up in the sense that they start to realize what's wrong with our current system and want to step out of that system, want to step out of the matrix to the real world. That may not happen for everybody, but what will happen for everybody is that when we have hard money in society, people will automatically start to think differently because there are emergent properties of the fiat system, such as hookup culture or consumerism. These kinds of things, we have very short time horizons, high time preference. Those are emerging properties of the fiat system, having weak money. But if we have a sort of money, it sort of just happened. We will have emergent properties for that as well, where we, instead of engaging in consumers, book of culture and fiat food and fiat science, all that, we will have a fiat architecture for that matter, 
I mean, look at all, all the architecture that is being built today. They're, they're here to last for decades, up to 100 years, and not thousands to tens of thousands of years. But we see that cultures that have had foreign money, they build for, they build for the future. We know that this is an emerging property of foreign money, that we extend our time horizons. And this is going to happen for everybody. Because as culture begins to change, as people expand their time horizons, it is going to change all of society, all of culture, and even the ones that are less prone to waking up or being receptive to change. They're also going to follow with, they're, they're naturally going to naturally slip into this kind of culture and this way of thinking, by just being, being present in that system. By being exposed. By being exposed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's in, that's in line with what I think. Like, I, I don't think for a second that the majority of the people will ever understand or be liberated by Bitcoin the way we are. I don't expect that. However, and this is something that uh, Saifedean and Kurt uh, Swarnholm like to talk about. I, I believe it was Saifedean's book that stated that you cannot insulate yourself from the effects of somebody using money harder than yours which is basically what you were talking about as well, because like it, it, uh, the effects, the positive effects of uh, in entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, development of society, it will spill over even to that, let's say, a quote unquote stupid people. Of course, that's a politically incorrect term to use, but let's just say, say that. So I think in that sense, most people are, are stupid in the way that they will wait for somebody to make that breakthrough and for it to become normal mainstream like same happened with the internet mobile phone everything uh the car you know henry ford said that if you ask the ask the market they would want faster horses like i think it's the same thing all over again and it has never changed there's this part of innovators scientists entrepreneurs who push humanity forward and i don't think bitcoin is any different to that like i, I think we we need to dial down a little bit on our enthusiasm like you said in the beginning like you're how, how did you put it irrationally enthusiastic no not maybe not that word what did you say but i think i said that i'm a delusional optimist oh there you go yes you're delusionally optimistic about bitcoin yes. and i'm the same way so for, we have to understand that that's that's not everybody and it, it is not for everybody it won't work the same way it won't hit it hits different and in a different way and a roundabout way. And that's also something that Hayek said, that that's you know, okay. this is the roundabout way. That's okay. What we need is people who push boundaries because we need the science fiction authors. We need Bitcoiners, people who can imagine a different kind of future so that we can recalibrate our compass as, uh, as a civilization, as a species and work towards that. We need people to imagine the future before we can build it. And so everybody, it doesn't have to hit everybody in the same way. Bitcoin no. is happening. Uh, it is happening. It's here. It, it's already working. And if it hits a few people, that's enough because we just see where this is, where this could take us. We can imagine that kind of future. And that is what I do with my book. I visualize, I provide a high resolution image of what the future could be like to, now that we have Bitcoin. Uh, first and foremost, it it's, it's, uh, protects us. We are currently in a civilizational decline. And as I make clear in the book, um, people are never aware that, that they are hit by the decline and uh, heading toward collapse because it happens so slowly. But we've been at a, in a very clear decline for the past 15 years. 
And it takes a civilization uh, a few centuries to collapse. It doesn't happen overnight. So it takes, uh, takes a couple of centuries. It happens so gradually that nobody really notices. But Bitcoin is a protection against the final collapse. And that is very important. I mean, does everybody have to know about this? Not necessarily, but it is important that we know that we have this kind of technology that actually protects civilization against the very dire consequences of currency devaluation. So we have that. But you know, Bitcoin does a lot of other things as well. And it is here. It is, uh, it is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And if it takes a long time, people grasp the technology and start to integrate it in their lives. That's fine too. I mean, we're in no rush here, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the way that Knut puts it, that but, you know, Bitcoin will make your life better, whether you like it or not. Knut <laughs> is brilliant. It really is uh, a good way of putting it. Yeah. All right. One last question before we wrap up here. Did psychedelics help you understand Bitcoin or did you understand Bitcoin before, before you uh, took psychedelics? In all the stages, in my book, I'm exploring uh, an entirely new path in the Bitcoin rabbit hole where I look at what it means for the future of our civilization. And I don't think a lot of people have, have explored that before, but that's what I tended to do with my work. And so I've obviously had some knowledge. I, I try to understand better, better all the time. And uh, sometimes you feel that you plateau and then you learn something new and something comes with a new perspective and you sort of gain new insight. What psychedelics have done for me is that it has spawned a, a ton of new great analogies that have shed new light on Bitcoin and that, that have helped me see Bitcoin in an entirely new light. And, and I will be talking about this in my presentation in Prologue on Bitcoin and psychedelics. But Bitcoin really has taught me, say, I'm oh, sorry, psychedelics have taught me things about Bitcoin that I don't think that in a book or any person could have ever conveyed because it really offers this deep dive into what it, what it really is. What is Bitcoin and what is money? And as Breedlove often contends, this is the uh, this is the question of the century. What is money? Uh, it's a defining question. And to really, Bitcoin has helped me zoom out and see what Bitcoin means for for our civilization. I mean, that's basically a topic as well. I don't think that I would have been able to write this book without the help of psychedelics. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's that's why I asked the question. It's the same for me. Like I. I heard about Bitcoin long, long before I, I tried psychedelics, but I think, and of course it's impossible to prove, but you know, after your mindset, uh, your, your vision of yourself and the world and, and the society you live in is completely shifted yeah. and, and upended, yeah. uh, of course it's going to have an effect. And I think it's, it affects, but, uh, are mostly positive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mostly positive, but most of all, all, uh, psychedelics reveal the truths. In much the same way that Bitcoin would be also true about the Shias in our current economy and a lot of how the world works today. Bitcoin reveals the truth about that. It, it shows us where the story is wrong. The psychedelics show us where the story we have about ourselves are wrong. And, yeah. and also about where society has gone wrong. And that is why counterculture emerged in the 60s. And you know, I'm a little worried that psychedelics may be happening a little bit too fast this time. It needs to gain enough momentum so that it comes and strong enough to withstand potential attacks from the state. Exactly like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is now strong enough that it can withstand most attacks. But it wasn't always like that. 
it needs to gain momentum before it comes it comes too popular before it reaches mainstream consciousness. Because if people understand the threats of Bitcoin and psychedelics to existing power structures, our existing power structures will do what they can to stop these movements. Well, I say I think they already do. Like the the powers that be, uh, they certainly understand the dangers of of Bitcoin and psychedelics to the powers that be. So yeah. that when we, we do have these uh, wars on drugs and, and we have all kinds of uh, scapegoats that way we, we uh, tell these stories to the normies or the stupid people that they, these are somehow worse than, and then you should only drink alcohol and, and you know eat prescription drugs because those are like FDA approved and safe for you, which is another lie. But unfortunately, historically, majority of humans have never been out in the market for truth. They have been out in the market for comforting lies. And I don't think this time is different. No, it's not different. But what we also have to understand is that the magnitude of the threat is not perceived accurately by our pro structures. Because if they could uh, extrapolate where Bitcoin and psychedelics are going to take us as a society and see how they will their influence in society, uh, I mean, the, the influence of the state and our power structures come to diminish over time and eventually become obsolete. If they truly saw what psychedelics and Bitcoin are going to do, how they're going to transform society, they would act differently, I think, but they are not perceiving the threats from that magnitude. If we were about to be invaded by aliens, if we received the message that Hey, Earthlings, we are going to be, we are going to land in 50 years. We're going to take your planets. Prepare, if you like, it doesn't matter. We would, uh, we would mobilize all of our defenses. We would take all of our resources to prepare for a threat that we don't even know what it is going to be like. And in the process, we would, uh, we would create mayhem on Earth. That we'll be doing for uh, the purpose of defending against these threats. And Bitcoin and psychedelics, it's that existential threat to existing power structures. But they're not preparing in the way that they would with a much clearer threat like an alien invasion. So in that way, they are misinterpreting the magnitude of the threat against them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe we are even uh, underplaying the power of Bitcoin. Like. Maybe we are underselling it. It's difficult to tell because things move so fast in the information age. Like if you look at the, in your book, you also talk about the, you know, biological evolution and the development of tools, how it took 2 million years for a slight improvement in, in the stone tools. And now we have like in the, within a span of 10 years, we, we have artificial intelligence, smartphones, the development is, it's just like, we cannot handle that kind of thing. So. It's very, very, very difficult to see like 50 years from now where we are. And maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should just focus on building. Like, I, I think that's the, that's the key message, message here. Yeah. Uh, we need to secure the survival of our species because we don't know what's coming. Right. I think Elon Musk is one of the most important human beings on this planet for this reason, because he just see the threats that we're facing. We have no idea what this planet is going to be, what we are, what we are capable of doing to ourselves. And in, in just a few decades time or a few centuries, we could face existential threats from AI, 
from ourselves, we need to become multiplanetary. And we need to become multiplanetary fast. We need to create fusion power to have a more or less endless source of energy. Yeah, and you know, talking to you, this, it, this, it just feels so crazy that the, the mainstream is all about carbon neutrality and, and decreasing energy consumption. I just like... This is, uh, it's, it's, it's alone to be, uh, uh, to be woke in this sense, you know, uh, to be outside of the matrix to wake up. Uh, it's a bit elitist to talk in this way. And I, I realize that, but it's also, I realize that we are privileged in seeing the flaws in the system, but we're also alone. I mean, we, that's why we have, that's why we're creating a new network state on the Bitcoin network with shared values rather than being unified by state currency. People are waking up, more and more people are waking up, whether from the use of psychedelics or characters with enlightened people or Bitcoin and the community of truly woke people too, the way you use that term, uh, is growing. Not woken people, not woke. Exactly. Sorry, yeah, exactly. That exact what I mean. Yeah, I guess like to start to wrap, wrap it up, uh, you know, consensus network is kind of like this sort of uh, network state as well. It's more like a, a new way to organize and, and do some work. Yeah. Ba- based on reputational capital and proof of work rather than, than fiat fund coupons. So I'm pretty proud of proud of what we build here. And also, I'm extremely proud of your book. It's one of Thank my you. favorites. Thank you. Excellent. Do you have anything else to uh, to add uh, before we quit? At least tell people where to find you. Yeah, well, I always have things to add, uh, but I'm not going to go any more ads. Not, not today. Let's say that for another occasion. My Twitter handle is Yoni Appleberg, I-O-N-I-A-P-P-E-L-B-E-R-G. I also have a YouTube channel where I make whiteboard extended videos about Bitcoin, easily accessible, fun and engaging animations. If you want to delve deeper into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, it's a fun place where I collaborate with the Swan holding guy Swan, also Yoni Appleberg. So go to YouTube and find me on Twitter. And of course, uh, come to Prague and pick up a signed copy of the book. Yep. And also remember bitcoinbook.shop. It's going to, we, we don't have it listed yet because we're waiting for the Prague release, but right after the, the conference, you'll, you'll be able to pick up your copy online in our, our bookshop as well, both hard and soft covers. Excellent. Perfect, Nico. All right. Thank you so much, Yoni, for, for joining, joining today. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope everybody in their homes, on their computers and their mobile phones did as well. Thank you. Bye. Thanks everybody.